Welcome to Sulphur Springs Baptist Church Sermon Audio. For more information, please visit our website at sulphurspringsbc.com. Blessing to hear that song. If you have your Bibles, we're going to go to Mark chapter 2 this morning. Notes are provided for you in your bulletin. If you grabbed one. We're going to read the first 12 verses of chapter 2. And... Uh, as I began just studying this week, my mind began to continue to go to this passage of Scripture, and so I've developed a couple of thoughts out of it, hoping to be a blessing this morning to us. And uh, if you have your place there in Mark chapter 2, we're going to stand in honor of God's reading, and we'll read verses 1 through 12. And the Bible says, and again he entered into Capernaum after some days, and it was noise that he was in the house. This was Peter's house, by the way, if you didn't know this, this is Peter's house where he's at. He had just healed Peter's mother-in-law just a couple of days before this. And it says, and straightway many were gathered there insomuch that there was no room to receive them. No, not so much as about the door. And he preached the word unto them. And they came unto him, bringing one sick of the palsy, which was born of four. And when they could not come nigh unto him for the press, they uncovered the roof where he was. And when they had broken it up, they let down the bed wherein the sick of the palsy lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, thy sins be forgiven. But there were certain of the scribes sitting there and reasoned in their heart, Why did this man speak blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God only? And immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they so reasoned with themselves, he said to them, why reason you these things in your heart? Whether it is easy for me to say to the sick of the palsy, thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, arise and take up your bed and walk, but that you may know that I am the son of man and have given power on the earth to forgive sins. He said unto the sick of the palsy, I say unto thee, arise. Take up your bed and go thy way into thine own house. And immediately he rose, took up his bed, and went forth before them all. Insomuch that all were amazed and all glorified God, saying, We never saw it on this fashion. Father, I pray that you'll be with this service today. Lord, give me the words to say, the, the strength to preach this message. In your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I want to look specifically today at these four men that brought this man who was sick to Jesus. I've titled this message, The Essentials for Effective Service, and how we can serve. God does not expect us to be born again, to accept his son as his savior, as our savior, and to sit and to sour and to soak. He wants us to serve. He wants us to be doers of the word, not hearers only as the book in James says. And so as we begin thinking of that, as we begin to give some introductory thoughts, I begin thinking back in my life when I surrendered to serve Jesus, surrendered to preach. Um, I surrendered to preach in between my 11th and 12th grade year of high school. Uh, but even before that, I remember going to youth conferences and the one youth camp that I did go to. Uh, I remember going to those things and even as a 16-year-old boy, I remember praying this prayer. I remember 
going down to an altar like we have here. I remember making a commitment to God. And I've actually got in one of my Bibles. It's not this one here that I've got with me. But I've got in one of my Bibles. I've got wrote in the back of it. It says this. I want to make a difference for Christ. As a 16-year-old boy, God began already implementing these thoughts in my life. And, and I've wrote many different things in my Bible. You may be a Bible writer. I'm, I, I'm, a pro, I'm an advocate of those things. As I read through Scripture daily, I, I like to make notes so that maybe next year or the year after when I read that passage again, I can see what I was thinking. Or maybe I'll pull a Bible out from my 16-year-old life and I'll see what I was thinking at 16 years old. And I'll say, man, how shallow was my thinking or how 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 different I think now or, or whatever it may be but there's also those commitments that I've wrote in the back of my Bible that, that God would provide me a good wife that I would be a good husband and I remember as I thought about those things this thought of serving him was prevalent in so many areas of my life and once we have salvation once we've accepted that gift of God I think that we should be fruit-bearing Christians Talked about this a little bit last week and, and how we bear certain things and how we produce certain things. But we should be producing as Christians other Christians, right? If we're a Christian and we're going to give the fruit of Christianity, we should be producing offsprings of Christians. Whether that be in our own house, whether that be our neighbors or our friends or whatever it may be, we should be trying to produce and telling others about Christian. We should also be producing love, joy, and peace. We should be giving those things of the fruits of the Spirit, the, the, the gentleness, the goodness, as, as Eric talked about on Wednesday, the gentleness of a Christian and how sometimes we're not that gentle. But as I began thinking of all those things and I began looking at this passage of Scripture, God sort of gave me four things out of this that we can implement in our life to be better servants of Christ. And so I want to start by this first statement of this is, observations from these men the first one is prevailing prayer in our life and I want us to ask ourselves this morning what does our prayer life look like is it just simply taking out your prayer bulletin and reading through the 150 200 names and saying Lord be with the sick ones that I don't know and help our military and is that the extent of our prayer life or do we have an intimate relationship, an intimate prayer with God? James 5.15 says this, And the prayer of the faith shall save the sick and the Lord shall raise them up. And if he have committed sins, they will be forgiven. And so we have to ask ourselves, if we are going to be a people of prayer, what does it look like? And in this passage of scripture, in verses 2 through 3, it says they were gathered together. There was no room but these men brought one that was sick to Jesus. What is prayer in our life? It's bringing our needs before a holy, perfect God. These four men took their needs before a holy, perfect God. They were a living example of what prayer is. And in our life, we have to ask ourselves, are we praying the way these men were serving? These men loved this man so much, they cared about him so much, they wanted to see him killed. And they had thought, you know what, the only person that can do this is Jesus. Because in chapter 1 of Mark, 
It talks about how Jesus was in Peter's house and he healed his mother-in-law and he healed all those that came to him. But then as it goes down to the end of chapter one, it says that Jesus was sort of done with his miracles and wanted to go out just to preach, just to tell people about why he was there. But these men knew that Jesus was the only hope that this person had. We must be a people of prayer. We must speak to God and we must seek his face. Are we seeking his face daily? I've learned that as I studied the prayers of Jesus and as I studied the life of his disciples and as I looked through their lives, they prayed this simple thought. Thy will be done. Not my will, but God's will. And how often am I guilty of laying before God and praying and saying, God, I want what I want and you're going to give it to me. Or am I praying and saying, God, I want what your will is to be done. And whatever that is, I want it to be done in my life. Are we praying for the lost in our community? This prevailing prayer, I want to think about it. Are we praying for our community that doesn't know Jesus? One man, I think it was Mueller, said it like this. Prayer is the hand of our need grasping the hand of God's power. Prayer is the hand of our need grasping the hand of God's power. Think of it like this as a kid. When a kid falls or hurts themselves and they're actually legitimately hurt, not falling just to get attention, which my kids do every once in a while, but falling because they're legitimately hurt, they cry out to their mom or dad and they reach up their hand because they're hurting. And the mom and dad comes by and they reach down and they pick that child up. The power of the parent comes in and steps in and reaches and pulls that child up and cares for that child and loves that child and nurtures them and puts a band-aid on their knee if their knee scrapes and loves them and, and, and comforts them into a moment of happiness. And yet our prayer should be the same way. It's us looking up to God and saying, God, I need the love that you have for me. I need the power that you have for me. And it's our hand reaching up to God in a moment of sincere helplessness. And God reaching down to us and saying, I'm going to give you that power that you need. And so what does prevailing prayer do for us? I said it like this in our notes. Prevailing prayer for us will give you a burden for others. Verse 3 says this, And they came to him, bringing one sick of the palsy, which was born of the four. Because they were so sincere in trying to seek Jesus' face, they said, we're going to bear someone else's burdens. This man who is sick, who can't get to Jesus, who never in a million years on his own will ever be able to get there because he's lame from birth, we're going to pick him up and we're going to take him to Jesus. And prayer will take the burdens of other people and will put them onto your shoulder. The prayers of your family, the prayers of your co-workers, the burdens of your co-workers, the burdens of your family. The burdens of those people will be on you because of your prayer life. It gives you a burden for it. The second thing, it causes us to bear their burdens in verse 4. 
And then in verse 5, it says that it causes us to believe God for others' sake. It causes us to believe in God for others. Look in verse 5. It says, and when Jesus saw their faith, he didn't see the faith of the lame man. He didn't see the faith of the Pharisees. It says, when he saw the four people that never even entered the room, when he saw their faith, he healed the man that was sick. But it was because of their faith. And when we believe God for others and we begin carrying others' burdens to God for them, God says, I'm going to help them because of your faith. I'm going to bless them because of your prayers. Because you have prayed for them. So my question is, is at the end of this part is, Whose burdens are we carrying? Whose burdens are on our back that we are bringing to Jesus daily? That we're believing that God is going to heal them. That we're believing that God's going to help them. We're believing that God's going to save them from an eternal salvation, from an eternal death and hell. Are we believing God for others? A prevailing prayer will do that. The second thing is this, a powerful faith. And we hit on it just a minute ago. But a powerful faith in verses 4 and 5. How strong is our faith? I wrote this down. I read it somewhere. I don't know what book I read it in. But it says, no ordinary faith will suffice if it was to accomplish an effective work. No ordinary faith will suffice if it is to accomplish an effective work. Christian nowadays... Myself included, uh, I'm writing this message for me more than anyone else. Our faith is very shallow. Our faith is that simple kid's prayer, now I lay me down to sleep, I pray the Lord my soul to keep. And that's sort of the extent a lot of times of, of our faith. But God says that we must take the right steps and let God grow us. These men came to Jesus with this other man. And there was this faith of trusting that there was only one person that could heal them. In Hebrews 11, chapter 6, it says, But without faith is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is the rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Is our faith that strong? That we're trusting that God is the rewarder of those things? Begin, I listen to music a lot and I listen to a variety of old hymns and Southern gospel and I'm slowly turning my son into a Southern gospel fan. My wife hates it, um, but we will listen to Gold City and Lefebvre Quartet and all these fun things in my truck and he's starting to like the tenor and the bass and all these fun things. Uh, but there'll be times in my life where I'll just throw in an old hymn that maybe Greater Vision came out with and I came across this song and it's actually not even in our songbooks. I tried looking for it all week long in our songbooks. I pulled out a couple other songbooks. I finally found it in the old church hymnal, the old Church of God red hymnal that we have. Um, but it's called Living by Faith. I'm going to read these verses to you, the chorus, because I think it's so important that we live this way. It says, the chorus is this, living by faith in Jesus alone, trusting, confiding in his great love. From all harm safe in his sheltering arms, 
I'm living by faith and feel no alarm. Verse 1, I care not today what tomorrow is going to bring. If shadow or sunshine or rain, the Lord I know ruleth over everything. And this one hit me when I actually, because a lot of times we sing songs, we sing them, and we don't really pay attention to the words. Y'all ever with me on that? It says, and all of my worry is vain. Verse 2, thou tempest may blow and storm clouds arise, obscuring the brightness of life. I'm never alarmed at the outcast skies. The master looks on at the strife. I know he will safely carry me through no matter what evils betide. What should I then care that the tempest may blow if Jesus walks close to my side? Our Lord will return to this earth some sweet day. Our troubles will then all be o'er. The master so gently will lead us away beyond that blessed heavenly shore. Is that our faith life? Are we living the way of faith that is so powerful that we're not worrying about tomorrow, that we're not worrying about those things? These men were willing to bust open the roof of someone's house to get this man to Jesus. Think about that. Imagine you were in your house eating lunch today and someone decided to go up on your roof and start beating your roof open. We just had the roof at the Parsons replaced. And uh, Mr. Costner came over the day before and he said, hey, I'm going to start working on your roof tomorrow at 6 a.m. We want to get here early. We don't want to be in the heat. I said, I understand. He said, we're going to make a lot of noise. We're going to be on your roof. I said, okay, I understand that. Went to my wife. I said, hey, Allie, tomorrow at 6 a.m., there's going to be people on our roof. They're going to be making noise. She said, okay, okay. Guess what happens at 6 a.m.? I get woken up, not by the people on the roof, but by my wife saying, what's going on? Something's happening. And I said, what time is it? She said, it's 6.10. I said, yeah, the roofers are here taking the roof off. They're putting a new roof on. It was a lot of noise. All of a sudden, about 6.15, Brody comes running in there. Mom, what's going on? What's happening? Someone's breaking in. The dog starts barking. Here comes Jade. I'm like, well, there went my sleep. I'm, I'm done. Okay. There's a lot of noise involved in someone taking off a roof. Now, in biblical days, they didn't have roofs and shingles the way we do. They had more of what's called concrete roofs. It would have taken these men, according to biblical knowledge, about two to three hours to bust open a roof hole big enough to put someone through. So you can imagine Jesus there preaching, just like we are, and someone decided to bust into our roof, and it took them two to three hours People are going to notice something's going on. This wasn't a thing where it was all quiet and no one really noticed. A lot of times when we teach this to children, we, we sort of look at it like a straw roof and they sort of ripped open the straw. They were like literally beating the roof off, trying to bust it open to put this man through. Their faith got the attention of others. Is our faith getting the attention of others? Is people noticing our faith in the community? I heard this from a man who I think it was Spurgeon that said, faith that can, that can command blessings from God will always achieve a conquest for him. Faith that can command a blessing from God will always achieve a conquest for him. If our faith is strong, church, we will do something about it. We will make a difference. We will, people will notice that there's something different about us because our faith is strong.
Do we have a powerful faith this morning, church? Number three, a personal love. A personal love. Do we show a personal love? These men showed a type of love that was more concerned about this man than the cost of the roof that they just tore open. It costed $4,200, I think, if I'm correct, $4,100, something like that, to replace the roof at the parsonage. So roofs are not a cheap thing. But these men were more concerned about the man that they were laying down to Jesus than the cost that was going to later incur upon them. Someone was going to have to replace this roof. Lawyers were going to come. Someone was going to come and pull lawsuits. Someone was going to have to replace this roof. But these men said, I don't care about the cost. The only thing that I care about is this man getting to Jesus. We must be a living testimony of love. I wrote down this love for two types of people, the lost and the saved. We've got to show love to everyone, not just a certain group of people that we see fit, but to every single person that's around us. And as I began studying that, I found this quote. It says, to love, and I changed it just a little bit, but it says, to love like the Trinity, which is the God, the Father, God, the Son, and God, the Holy Spirit, the heart of love is sympathy. Someone who's able to come in and sympathize with someone. They're able to come and say, you know what, I know you're hurting, I know you're going through wrong things, and that's the heart of love, and I, I think that most people can say, you know what, I've got to, I can sympathize with someone. It, it's somewhat easy to go in and pray with someone when something's happened, and to be able to sympathize with someone is the heart of love. But the hand of love is service. Not only do we need to sympathize with someone, but we must serve them. You know, if, if any one of you, and some of you have, called me at two in the morning for a, a problem, I'm going to get up and I'm going to take care of it. I'm going to do my best to deal with the situation. But if a stranger calls me at two o'clock in the morning that I don't know, most of the time I'm going to let it wait till the next day. And so we've got to think to ourselves, how strong is our love? How strong is our service? And then ultimately, this third point of, of love being like the Trinity is this. The act of love is sacrifice. I've used this word the past two Sundays. But if we're going to love people, we've got to sacrifice something. Jesus said, I'm going to love you so much that I'm going to sacrifice myself. I'm going to sacrifice so much. And as I began reading John 3.16, and we all know John 3.16, we can quote it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And we know that and we sort of know it by heart, almost like those hymns that we sing that we know by heart. It doesn't really affect us anymore when we hear them. We hear the love of God and it doesn't really affect us the way it used to. But I wrote this down, sort of to summarize John 3.16. If we love much, we will do much. Think about it. If we love much, if we love someone a lot, we're going to do something a lot. God said, I love the world so much that I'm going to give the world the ultimate sacrifice, his son. 
And if we love others much, we're going to require much of us to give to others. As a church, relationships build the church. First, it's that salvation relationship, but then it goes further into discipleship. Spending time, sacrificing time, spending that time with other people to disciple them, to become closer followers of Jesus. So there's a personal faith, I'm sorry, personal love, a powerful faith, a prevailing prayer. And then the last one is this, a persistent effort. In verses 5 through 7, we see this effort that's given. We see that these men brought him to Jesus and the Pharisees were there and they were complaining. They were saying, who does these things? And then the, Jesus said, thy sins be forgiven. And the Pharisees began to say, this man speaking blasphemy. Continuance in doing well means doing a thing well. If you're going to continue to do something and to do it well, then you must do it with everything that you've got. In our life as Christians, there will always be naysayers. There will always be someone that says, well, I remember how that person used to live. Just give it some time. They're going to get back to that point where they're not Jesus freaks anymore and they're going to get back to whatever it is. There's always going to be those naysayers. The people here, the Pharisees said, ah, is this really true? Can we really believe this? Who can heal sins? Who can forgive sins but God only? There's always going to be people in our life that are going to say, nah, I don't think that's going to work out. These men, as I began studying this, were very unconventional. And I believe churches, we're going to be a church that's going to impact our community We've got to be unconventional sometimes. We've got to do things out of the ordinary. We've got to do things that sort of give that shock factor, but then they're like, hey, what, what just happened? And it's not saying we're going to reinvent the wheel, but trust me, Jesus Christ gives the shock factor. Telling people there was a man who came and lived a perfect sinless life, who was the son of God, who gave himself for them, is a shock factor. So as our musicians come and Heather comes, as we begin wrapping this up, they can start playing. We all must labor together to get this job done. You notice as we look at this passage, there wasn't one man that brought one man to Jesus. There was four men, a team of men who said, we've got to get this man to Jesus at all costs. And they threw this man on a blanket on a bed and put them on his shoulder and carried them to the house and when they got to the house he said that the house was so full they couldn't get in now I know me I would have probably said you know what we did a pretty good job guys we got him to church we did everything we could it was too packed or too many people here we'll just leave him right here and walk away but these men said you know what we've got to get the job done we've got to continue on and they walked around the back of the house and they found the stairs and they said, you know what, we're going to go up these stairs. And I'm sure the neighbors said, what are you doing? Why are you going up those stairs? You shouldn't be doing that. They said, we've got to get this man to Jesus at all costs. They went up to the top of the roof and as they began ripping the roof open, people began saying, hey, you probably shouldn't do that. But they said, we've got to get the job done. We must work together 
to get this man to Jesus. We've heard the statement, it takes a village to raise a child, right? It takes a church to reach a county. It takes a church to reach a state. It takes a church to reach a nation. And we must be devoted to be churches in a community that are going to reach together to reach a nation for Jesus. Who are we personally helping to get to Jesus? Who's that friend at school, that neighbor beside you, that person at work that you're praying for to get to Jesus? There's sadness and sorrow all around us. We see people sick of the coronavirus. We see people sick of different diseases. And everyone, I watched a documentary this week called The American Gospel, and it said that every person is looking for an answer. They're looking for help. And church, we have the answer. They're turning for drugs and alcohol, and they're turning to things that are going to give them a temporal satisfaction, and then when it's done, they're going to be searching for something else. But we have something today that is worth sharing. We have something today that will change and revolutionize a person's life. Are we doing that I know this in closing, if we personally and corporately as a church will implement these four things, we will see change. If your prayer life begins to grow, if your faith begins to grow, if your love begins to grow, and ultimately your effort for Jesus begins to grow, we will see change happen. But it doesn't start at a church, it starts right here personally. It starts with me, it starts with you, it starts with my family, it starts by saying, what are we doing to change people's lives around us? People are looking for help today more than ever. Are we bringing them to Jesus like these four men did? See, this passage goes on and it talks about how Jesus ultimately did heal him, but I thought the main part of this passage was these four men doing everything they possibly could to get one person to Jesus? Are we doing everything we possibly can to bring one person to Jesus? Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this sermon that you've given me. I pray that it helps someone this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. Please remember to drop a rating and subscribe to get our latest audio.